Chapter Nine, Part Two, of Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. The South Island of New Zealand, its Alps and Mountain Lakes, Part Two. Dunedin was founded in 1848 by a colony of Scotch settlers under the leadership of Captain Cargill, who, at the instance of the late Thomas Chambers, called the town Dunedin, the ancient name for Edinburgh. It is the largest of the New Zealand towns, is the great centre of commercial activity, and has the finest stone buildings. Prince's Street is broad and handsome and contains the magnificent structure of the Bank of New Zealand. Besides, there is the museum, the post office, the hospital, the high school, the university and government buildings, all built of the same cream-colored bath stone. There are nine separate municipalities within Dunedin and its suburbs. The entire population is Scotch, and when you think that it is only thirty years ago since the first settlers arrived in Otago and founded Dunedin, the enterprising citizens may well be proud of our own romantic town. It is stated that Captain Cargill used to send back and pay the return passage any immigrants other than Scotch who were landed, and another amusing story is told on this subject a propos a Chinaman. The municipality sent out tenders for some building, and a John MacIver sent in one amongst others. He was accepted and subsequently turned out to be a John Chinaman. When asked why he had assumed that name, he answered that no other than a Scotchman or with a Mac before his name had a chance of succeeding here. This story reminds me that nearly all of the market gardening in New Zealand is done by Chinamen. They lay out their gardens on the principle of having no square plots or straight lines, but all in angles and corners, and on a barren acre of land they succeed, where no one else would, in producing an abundant supply of vegetables. Sunday, October 19th, Dunedin. A cold, windy Sunday, with frequent storms of hail and sleet. We went to church at St. Paul's, meeting the Salvation Army, which has taken as great a hold on the people out here as it has at home. All the principal churches are, of course, Presbyterian. The one with the beautiful tapering spire is called the New Church, and another the Old Knox Church. We took the cable car to the top of the hill to have luncheon with Mr. Twopenny, editor of the Otago Daily Times, and one of the principal organizers of the Melbourne Exhibition. Meeting there, Mr. Justice Williams, Judge of the Supreme Court. In the afternoon, we drove with the mayor through the botanical gardens. They are very prettily laid out, with some bits of native bush left to grow in their own wild luxuriance among the cultivated brushes and shrubs, intertwined with wild clematis, which here has a flower as large and waxy as Stephanotis. We also drove along the Port Chalmers Road, cut out on the side of a hill overlooking the valley. 
Returning to tea at the mayor's house, we met there the master of the high school, Mr. Wilson, a very clever man. In talking of immigration, they said that no member dares to support or advocate it on any platform. The feeling and outcry against it is so strong throughout the country among the working class who fear that the importation of hands will lower the high rate of wages at present existing. A farm laborer earns easily from seven to eight shillings a day, and carpenters, bricklayers, and masons command ten shillings a day. This is with a comparatively cheap rate of living. Monday, October 20th. We left Dundin by the eight o'clock train for Invercargill, having the same saloon attached, and Mr. Weldon kindly went part of the way with us, returning on a luggage train. The same bleak, windy weather as yesterday made the tussock country look, if possible, drearier than ever. We reached Invercargill at 5 p.m. and went for a walk about the town. The dusty streets stretching out in their dreary length to the flat country beyond looked peculiarly bare and uninviting, and this impression was increased by the blinds of all the houses being halfway down for the funeral of the late surveyor-general. The trees do not seem to have had time to grow up, and there is a crude, half-finished look about Invercargill. I must say, in a less degree, we notice the same at Dundin. Both these towns have the sparse, frugal look of the people who inhabit them. The Albion Hotel, where we stayed, was in the high street, and very commercial. C. went in the evening with some members of the municipality to a volunteer drill. He looked in afterwards at the Athenaeum Club opposite, which is well arranged and organized, and is open for the use of ladies also. Tuesday, October 21st. We left Invercargill by the 6.45 train in the morning to make an expedition to Lake Wakitip, pronounced Wakitip. The train was very slow, though there were many stations along the line, where they only stop if there are passengers, a whole list in Bradshaw being starred for this purpose. Passing through one of the many sheep runs, a flock had got loose on the line, and we ran over an old ewe in spite of all precautions. There was a notice put up at one of the stations about the rabbit pest, which is nearly as bad here as in Australia giving warning that after the 1st of November, poisoning by laying down phosphorescent corn was to begin. This method of poisoning was invented by a man who was being ruined by the devastation of rabbits on his property. The discovery came too late to save him, and he went bankrupt, but now he devotes all his time trying to save others by disseminating the knowledge of his discovery. Ranges of hills covered with snow now succeeded to the flat plains. We were quite near the snow line, and I noticed how the hills, without sloping, descended sheer down onto the plain. We arrived at Kingston at the head of Lake Wakiti and found the steamer, the Mountaineer, moored at the wharf. There ensued a very long waiting whilst the cargo was leisurely put on board. It was two hours after the train had come in before the last whistle sounded 
to be quadrupled by the echo from the surrounding mountains, and we were off. We had the most heavenly afternoon for our trip up the lake with no wind, and the perfect stillness allowing the outline of the mountains to be faithfully mirrored and reflected back on the calm surface of the lake. To the right, there is a wild range of rocky terraces known as the Devil's Staircase, and here the water was of an ordinary blue, but on the other, and under the lee of the dark mountains, it was of transparent marine green, very beautiful to behold. Lake Wakitit is sixty miles long, varying from three to four miles in width. The surface of the lake is 1,000 feet above the level of the sea, but its bed is 300 feet below. The water is intensely cold, and anyone drowned in this lake never comes to the surface again. The body is believed to become so frozen before it reaches the bottom, so great is the depth and so icy the temperature. The great peculiarity and remarkable beauty of Lake Wakitip lies in the precipitous mountains that descend sheer into the lake in one straight line, varying from 3,000 to 9,000 feet. There are no undulating slopes or breaks in the range, no peeps of the country outside the mountains, which rise up at a fixed and impassable barrier, shutting us in whichever side we turn, making us unconsciously long for a glimpse of the outer world. The captain of the mountaineer told me that it is believed from soundings that the formation of the bed of the lake assumes the same shape as the mountains above. Therefore, if we look down into their icy depths, we should see the phenomenon of mountains turned upside down. It struck me as being a very pretty but fantastic theory. We had been too early in the year for the other parts of the islands, but at Wakitit we had come exactly at the right time, for the mountains were yet covered with snow. They looked so beautiful with it lying in smooth, unbroken surfaces on the summits and dwindling down to lie along the ridges or in isolated patches below the snow line. Underneath that again there lay a moraine of stones and rocks or a bit of bush flourishing in a ravine. The lights and shadows had full play on the rounded arms and jutting peaks of the mountains that afternoon, and sitting on the deck in the warm sun, we thoroughly enjoyed the two hours' trip to Queenstown. We entered the natural harbor and passed at the entrance the wooden triangle with the black line, showing the height of the flood some years ago, which nearly destroyed the township. It was caused by a freshet from the sudden melting of the snow after several days of unusual heat. The cragged top of Ben Lomond wreathed with snow and that splendid range of the Remarkables form a wonderfully grand background to the humble roofs of the charming little village of Queenstown. There is a sleepy look among the few stragglers on the wharf waiting for the steamer to come in and a primitive air about the little hotel just opposite, with a stout landlady standing on the steps to see what guests will arrive. The peninsula, with the tall eucalyptus trees jutting out into the lake, is called the park. You go over a bridge and through a turnstile to reach it, and find a disused cannon at the end, pointed down the lake. 
it is all very quiet and dull and sounds uninteresting but we thought it so pretty and that queenstown was one of the few places we had come to that we should care to linger in there are beautiful walks and drives by the side of the lake up to the mountains or through the pass that leads to the village of arrowtown queenstown is the center of the otago gold diggings mining operations being carried on in some of the mountains round about and many is the story we heard of a sudden leap into wealth by the accidental find of gold these finds are often rendered valueless by the want of water for working them but the claim which the owner takes out by paying a small sum to the government entitles him to the first use of the water nearest the digging trout have been introduced and they are annually hatching one hundred sixty thousand of salmon ova to be turned into the lake in the hope that it may become a large industry as with a freezing apparatus they could be sent home to england a law was passed that trout were only to be caught with a line but now they have become so large weighing from eighteen to twenty pounds that government is to be petitioned to legalize the already surreptitiously used net wednesday october twenty second we spent a quiet morning one of the first we have had for a long time with nothing particular to do but wander along the shore of the lake the weather looked unpromising and rough for the proposed trip to the head of the lake later on but it changes here with the wind which may be said to shift round twenty or thirty times a day and by the afternoon the lake was calm and the weather bright the steamer was late in being signalled and when she came alongside the jetty there was a flock of sheep to be disembarked refusing in a body to move till one was dragged off as a decoy when they all followed like a flock of sheep altogether we were two hours late in starting the captain the engineer and the steward greeted us again as old friends and we felt quite at home on the mountaineer we had not realized till we got away from queenstown what a splendid range the remarkables were with their serrated peaks and depressed edges filled with snow running in ridges of downwards or crossways lines the mountains were grander and gloomier rising to a great height here than in the lower part of the lake the flattened top of the necklace mountain forms the landmark where the steamer turns the white point into the upper end of the lake we had to go six miles out of our course to land a shepherd on a small pier throwing his dog overboard to swim after him the steamer stops wherever it is wanted and a fire is lighted as a signal on the shore or two in cases of sickness we were very glad of this divergence because our course took us straight across the lake in full view of all the glory and beauty of that grand collection of snow domes which shut in the lake at the head monarch above all rose mount Ernslaw nine thousand feet above the sea level with his long saddle of pure white snow leading up on the one side to the arit and the small conical peak of the summit the long descent on the other side is formed of innumerable peaks and curved round in the shape of a circular basin inside this there is a glacier of many thousand acres in extent from under a glassy portal 
in whose side issues a stream called the Rees. In the summer, after the snow has melted away, the glacier takes a beautiful lake-green color, such as those who have seen it affirm it is found nowhere else. Mr. Green gives a most interesting account in The High Alps of New Zealand of his ascent of Mount Earnslaw, but he only accomplished 6,000 feet and was surpassed last summer by Mr. Walker of Dundin, who made a further ascent of 300 feet. It is wonderful to think of those eternal glaciers and iron-bound peaks untouched by the foot of man, forever destined to be beyond his range. On either side of us were the Humboldt Range and the picturesque cosmos, with their sides terraced into steps, which are supposed to show the different levels of the glacier lake. We had not seen a single fine sunset whilst in New Zealand, and if we were destined to see but one, it was well for us that it came on this particular evening. We beheld a sky mottled at first with beautiful opal tints, and then changing to a pearly grey streaked with pale blue, succeeded in its turn by crimson clouds that left their rosy traces on the hills, for we had a real alpine afterglow reflected on the dazzling purity of the snow. The ruddy tinge still lingered on a few high peaks long after the others were in shade, and we watched regretfully the last warm colouring fade away and leave them lifeless, cold, and grey, ghastly in the gathering gloom. We sat on deck muffled in shawls till Orion and the Southern Cross came up, and the cold wind drove us down into the stuffy little cabin with its swinging oil lamp. We arrived at Kinloch in total darkness about 9 p.m. We could only see the wooden pier by the light of the lantern held by an old man. We found it was full of holes the next morning, and we stumbled after him up a rough pathway. The mountaineer sent forth a shrill shriek on the still night air, that echoed from the mountains round, and in the darkness we heard the steamer ploughing her way across the lake to Gerloch, her night's resting place. Two girls came out of a hut at the old man's call and led us up to a deserted cottage on the hill. One brought a shovelful of coals and lighted the fire, while another found some ends of candle. The house smelt musty and damp, as if it had long been uninhabited, I passed a very disturbed night, thinking I heard sounds outside, and the situation was strange and lonely, for we were in a deserted house, in an isolated spot, and with the front door standing wide open all night. We were called at half-past five for the steamer, which we heard giving warning whistles, and saw coming across from Garloch. We had a delicious morning for our return journey down the lake seeing one tree and pigeon islands, which we had missed in the darkness last night, and Mount Earnslaw for the last time, looking superb in the clear morning air. Twenty-five miles away lay the beautiful sounds of the west coast, but the road between the lake and the coast is as yet unpierced. I have seen pictures and heard descriptions of Milford and Dusky Sounds, and they must be very beautiful. But at present, the Union SS Company only run one excursion steamer there during the year. 
we stayed an hour at Queenstown and reached Kingston at 1 p.m. The train left half an hour afterwards, and we arrived at Invercargill at 8 that evening to find a gale blowing that augured badly for the morrow. Lake Wakitip will soon become the favourite resort for the businessmen of Dunedin, and we thought it as beautiful as Lucerne or any of the Italian lakes, not so pretty perhaps on account of the want of vegetation, but grander and more sublime in the outline of the mountains. We were leaving New Zealand the next day, and with the greatest regret, the homely geniality and hospitality that we had met with during our sojourn in both islands had made the few weeks spent there full of pleasant recollections. Afterwards, when our travels were all over and we were home once more, I found we always looked back to New Zealand as the happiest part of our travels, so thoroughly had we enjoyed our expedition to the hot lakes and geysers in the North Island and to Lake Wakiti in the South. End of section 9, part 2